0: Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reid Galen. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Burris, political reporter for rawstory.com. Prior to her time at Raw Story, Sarah wrote for a variety of outlets, including Salon, The Nation, and Mother Jones. She was also the digital editor at bluenationreview.com and co-edited Future Majority. Today, she's coming to us from the great state of Oklahoma, now down a football coach, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. Sarah, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, Sarah, let's get on to what's happening. It has been a busy week in Washington, D.C., as it always is nowadays. We have the Omicron pandemic. We have the Supreme Court hearing a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. All of those things are very important. So let's talk about something that is important, but also completely in line with where we are as a country today. And that is what I would call the Wonder Women of the House Republican Conference. I want to start with lauren bobert and the video that she was caught telling a story now apocryphal means that it was made up and passed into legend this was just flat out a lie about entering an elevator with representative ilhan omar from minnesota where she made you know some disparaging remarks to omar about her muslim background rob if we have that audio why don't we go ahead and play it
1: so i was getting into an elevator with one of my staffers And he and I are, we're leaving the Capitol. We're going back to my office and we get in the elevator and I see a Capitol police officer running hurriedly to the elevator. I see fret all over his face and he's reaching. And I'm like, the door's shutting. Like I can't, I can't open it. Like what's happening? I look to my left and there she is. Ilhan Omar. And I said, well, she doesn't have a backpack. We should be fine. Florida, go! And was like, ah, do I say it or not? And looked over, and I said, Oh, look! The Jihad Squad decided to show up for work today. Uh, oh, woo, woo.
0: So, Sarah, I don't even know where to begin here because it's so clearly made up. I mean, my personal belief is that Bobert is the loneliest member of the 435 members of Congress. She has no real friends. No one wants to hang out with her. This was not the job she was promised when she started running for Congress, probably as a joke last year. And now here she is. The only connection she has to humanity is this kind of real ugly performance where she knows that the uglier she is, the more her audience will like it.
1: And what's sad is that she isn't even in sort of with the crazy caucus with the Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and from what I understand from folks on the Hill, she's also by far the dumbest member out of all of them. And that's really saying a lot.
0: Well, the difference, though, is that Bobert suffers from a lack of intelligence, tact, couth, a whole bunch of things. Marjorie Taylor Greene may not be classically intelligent, but what she does share with Trump is that sort of lizard brain intuition into what her people want and a perfect willingness to give it to them.
1: And she probably knows better. Whereas Bobert may really not.
0: (laughs) Oh, for sure. She knows better. Bobert may not know any better, but she doesn't know anything else either. And I can't even imagine, you know, even in this fictional tale she told. I mean, I was an intern on the Hill. I was a page on the Hill the summer of 93. I cannot imagine what it must be like to be a staffer in her office. I mean, I just can't imagine the zombie parade that must come to pay heed to this woman, you know, answering the phone being chief of staff, you know, in D.C. parlance, these are real jobs. And like, what do you say to your friends when you go home at night? Like, hey, man, listen, you know, I got to pay the bills, I guess.
1: I remember whenever there was a huge group of Marjorie Taylor Greene staff that quit sort of in mass. And I was looking at who those people were. I think maybe one guy, I knew his name from appearances on Fox News. Bobert's people, I don't really know any of those folks. So they have to be people from maybe the Colorado Republican Party that they brought into Washington, which is really not a smart thing to do whenever you're trying to make your name as a new member of Congress and get legislation passed and actually do something for your community. But again, that's probably not why she's there. And it's probably not even a focus for her. She's probably in the uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene school of become famous and just be a professional troll for a living.
0: You know, that's the other thing, too, as I'm interested as we go forward here, another term or two, if these people survive, is how much they actually want to do this job and how much they actually need to do it to maintain their base of support. I mean, Green, and we'll get to her in a minute, a lot of these people, they'll get, you know, a deal with OAN. Someone will pay them, not a lot of money, but someone will pay them some money to write a book or have someone write a book for them. And so that's the thing is that the whole thing has become, I got elected, Now I'm going to build my name. I'm going to build the ability to raise money. And, you know, whether or not Marjorie Taylor Greene was a member of Congress from Georgia's whatever 14th District or whatever it is, or she's running a super PAC, she probably still commands a fair amount of money year in and year out from small dollar donors who just love her being on Steve Bannon every day.
1: Mm hmm. And she has nothing better to do because she's not in any committees. And if she goes into the House chamber, she's going to get fined for not wearing her
0: mask. And Well, and that's cost her 60 grand this year. Right? Yeah. That's like real money. That's
1: real money, although she's independently wealthy because her dad basically handed her his business and all of his money.
0: You know, it's interesting. So Stuart Stevens, one of our senior advisors, wrote a book called It Was All a Lie, came out fall of 20, the paperback came out a couple of months ago. And the one thing, Sarah, that I was fascinated by, and I know we're a little bit off on a tangent here, was that I didn't realize that if William Buckley's father had not paid for the publication of his book and ultimately bought the publishing house, that his book probably never would have been published. So this concept, this myth of the sort of pull yourself up by the bootstraps that the Republican Party has held on to for so long that, frankly, I was, you know, a true believer in for so long is horseshit. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is a perfect example of it. She didn't pull herself by any bootstraps unless they were $500 (laughs) Lucchese.
1: And so is Donald Trump's. I'm reading David K. Johnston's book, The Big Cheat, just came out yesterday. And he basically goes through all of the fraud, all of the Trump organization, Ivanka, Don Jr., Eric, all of it, and sort of ties everything together in a nice big bow because it just seemed like when we were in it it was like one story after another and we were just constantly trying to drink from you know the fire hose and so you're starting to see that everything really is a lie it is all a big cheat and that is sort of the thing that people can aspire to in the Republican party is how can we lie enough to make myself look like this great business person or this great member of congress or whatever when it's just A lie. You're either an idiot or, you know, a fraudster.
0: The bottom line is being willing to say and do anything within that orbit, within that power structure to advance. So let's talk about that. So Boebert goes off and says these things about Ilhan Omar, and immediately there are calls for her to be removed from her committees. It would make her the third Republican member after Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene to be removed from committees. Although, to your point, I'm not sure they care. So what difference does it make? But this led to a follow-on fight between Marjorie Taylor Greene, aforementioned, and Representative Nancy Mace from South Carolina, another freshman member. Now, Mace, before we get into it, is interesting because she is one of those people who, not unlike a Kevin McCarthy, who we'll also get to in a minute, is trying to live in the middle of the highway and is getting run over by cars coming both ways. You know, in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, I had hopes that she was going to be someone like a, maybe not up to the level of Cheney and Kinzinger, but someone at least closer in that ilk. And then she sort of veered wildly back and forth. Speaking of Lauren Boebert a couple of months ago, you know, she shows up to some community event, you know, with tight jeans on and like a thigh holster with a pistol in it. And then the sort of FU attitude that they sort of swagger out and all the good old boys swoon, right? I mean, it's gross in many ways. But not surprising. So Mace goes on CNN this past Sunday and she says this. She says, quote, I have time after time condemned my colleagues on both sides of the aisle for racist tropes and remarks that I find disgusting. And this is no different than any others. This is in reference to what Bovart said about Ilhan Omar. Now, remember that, Sarah, as you know, there must be 100 percent total adherence to the ugliness and racism That is inherent in the mainstream of the Republican leadership now. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, not one to let an opportunity in her mind go by, says this on Twitter. She says, quote, Nancy Mace is the trash in the GOP conference. Never attacked by Democrats or rhinos. Same thing. Because she is not conservative. She's pro-abortion. Mace, you can back up off Lauren Boebert or just go hang with your real gal pals, the Jihad Squad your Y-O-U-R out of your league. Now this is like something in high school.
1: Oh, this isn't even high school. This is like middle school. That's how bad this is. Right.
0: This is like my fifth graders like class chat. So May says it's your Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. And while I'm correcting you, I'm a pro-life fiscal conservative who was attacked by the left all weekend, as I often am, as they defied China while in Taiwan. What I'm not is a religious bigot, Parenthesis or racist you might want to try that over there in your quote little league this is what batshit crazy written with emojis looks like um she actually wrote that right this she is did. what batshit crazy looks like so marjorie taylor green back and forth here gang the ping pong continues just had a great conversation with president trump about nancy mace i absolutely love president trump he's our leader which is interesting right she ran to dad right to tattle on her sister mace responds finally on twitter i like my freshman colleagues who don't think 9-11 was a hoax this one on the other hand totally nuts nut emoji don't look now but it's mtg unable to take the heat running to the principal's office to tattletale because she can't stand on her two feet bless her heart like these are elected members of congress i mean sam rayburn tip o'neill bob michael There are lions of the United States House of Representatives who are rolling over in their graves as they watch this come down. You know, one person who's all in on the Trump MAGA jihad squad thing, the other one who's trying to, I think, maintain some semblance of decency, but can't get out of her own way trying to do it. And we should note as an aside, Sarah, that she was attacked over the weekend for some crazy vaccination business, not because she was in Taiwan.
1: And it wasn't even the, necessarily the vaccination position. It's, she was just trying to play both sides of it. She was saying one thing to Fox and one thing to CNN. And we just called her out for that.
0: Right. So what's happening?
1: I mean, definitely the phrase, bless your heart, is like the southern smackdown of all time. That's the worst thing that you could close with. That's the might drop.
0: Well, and just as an aside, you know, Mace and Green were both called into McCarthy's office separately. When Mace came out into the hallway or onto the steps of the Capitol, One of the reporters said, do you have anything to say? And Mace said, quote, bless her fucking heart.
1: Oh, nice. Well done.
0: Which I think actually reduces the effectiveness.
1: True. I think instead of the mic drop, that's more of like chucking the mic across the room.
0: So let's talk about McCarthy. He's minority leader of the U.S. House, embattled in his own right, has been like Mace over the years, trying to find his footing with a foot in both camp inside the Republican Party. And that is an impossibility. Last week over the Thanksgiving holiday, Marjorie Taylor Greene rips his face off, like he's no leader, he's not a true believer, blah, 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 blah. Then posts a tweet that says, just had a great talk with Kevin McCarthy. I believe in his vision, right? So he totally doubles over for her. So now he's got to deal with both of these members. And he can't get either one of them to do what he wants. He can't calm the playground. You know, Green basically says, you know, Kevin, you can do whatever you want. You can sit me down in here and lecture me, but you know as well as I do, like you need me more than I need you. And Mace probably said, Kevin, you are a weakling, you are a nutless wonder, and I don't really care what you have to say about anything. You know that this isn't okay, and you're sitting by and letting her get away with it because you're afraid of her. And then they both went out and said what they said. So it's just this weird, circular firing squad where every time Democrats believe that like next year is hopeless, watch this stuff. Because this is not the end, right? Like They're just getting warmed up.
1: This is the beginning for Democrats. If Democrats were smart, they'd be playing a lot of this up and talking about just the immaturity of the Republican Party and that this is the new standard for a Republican Party. Whenever it comes to Kevin McCarthy, I don't know if you know about my my abilities, but I, uh, I'm i telepathetic. Oh, really? Yeah, so I can really tell when people are lame. Uh, <laughs> that's what being telepathetic is. And this is not the first speaker who's had to deal with the Nutter caucus. This is what John Boehner used to talk about as just being like, the reason that he would, you know, want to drink and smoke more. And then the same thing happened whenever Paul Ryan was brought in to be speaker. And he was just like, this is a waste of my time and basically just bailed on everything, you know, because he too could make more money as a lobbyist. So again, like this is happening over and over again. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether we, we lose in 2022 and Kevin McCarthy becomes the speaker, you can clock his career with an egg timer. The dude's going to be gone in probably two years anyway. He'll just be eaten.
0: I mean, we as an organization, and me personally, don't believe he'll ever be speaker. You know, the thing that he used to have, and Ryan and uh, Eric Canner had this too, and even Boehner in different times, was that they had this massive amount of independent expenditure money, right? These massive super PACs where they could deploy Charles Schwab's money and Steve Schwartzman's money and all these other things, because McCarthy's always been best at raising money. He's never been a good legislator. He was a terrible whip when he was whip and he's not a good majority leader now. But people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, they don't need his money and they don't want it.
1: No, they don't. I mean, especially when you've got Matt Gates and Marjorie traveling around the country, raising their own buckets of money. And it's not like Marjorie has to go to work. Right. So with all of this money, with the super PACs and the using the Trump list and all of that, like McCarthy has no hope of ever trying to reign any of these people in because they're just going to be able to thumb their nose at him and say, you know, I can do this without you. And she's got control of a lot of people. Plus, she can run to Daddy Trump and he'll send out a press release saying that he no longer supports McCarthy. And that's it.
0: I mean, that's the thing I think, Sarah, for the Democrats is you got to do the best job you can, because there's a really good chance that the Republicans are going to go Tiger King on each other. You know, so now Marjorie Taylor Greene said that she's going to find a primary challenger for Nancy Mace. That's probably not that hard in southeastern South Carolina. And so, you know, that will be a dogfight. And how many more of those, whether or not it's Liz Cheney, I mean, Kinsinger and Gonzalez quit. But, you know, there's that 10 people who voted to impeach him, the 13 or 15 people who voted for the infrastructure bill. All these people are going to be primaried by the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene. And even in a relatively Republican district. They may nominate someone who's so out to lunch that even moderate Republicans are like, I don't think so. But I want to stay on Green for a second because on Steve Bannon's podcast, which I don't know if you've ever listened to it.
1: Small amounts.
0: And that's all you should do. It's like peyote. Don't do a lot. It it, It is truly mind bending stuff. And she's a regular fixture on that show now. And she said earlier today, as we're taping here on Wednesday, That she does not represent the fringe of the Republican Party. She represents the mainstream of the Republican Party. I don't agree with Marjorie Taylor Greene on much, and I don't give her credit for being honest that often, but she is right and it is true when she says that.
1: Yeah, she's absolutely spot on. She is absolutely the middle of it. And McCarthy, I think, is probably the left flank now at this point. John Boehner probably isn't even a Republican anymore. They just toss him out.
0: Right. Well, I mean, Reagan wouldn't be. Nixon wouldn't be. And none of them would be. Any Republican president pre-Trump or even nominee pre-Trump, not a Republican anymore.
1: Even W, you can tell like his press releases are just sort of trying to stay out of everything. But it's, he's been pretty clear like, oh, my God, these people are all nutters.
0: Well, remember, whether you agreed with the policy or not, pre-9-11, George W. Bush's first major policy victory was public education. Right now, he didn't think he was going to be a wartime president. None of us knew 9-11, but this was a guy who as late, remember, as 2007 with John McCain and Ted Kennedy almost got immigration reform over the line
1: with a pathway to citizenship.
0: Right. So like there's no place even for George W. Bush anymore. And, you know, he just hosted a fundraiser for Liz Cheney. Like he may not say a lot publicly or what he does is very sphinx like, but by his actions, you can tell like where he stands. And you think about the business community, too. And, you know, let's tie this back to Kevin McCarthy for a second. I mean, he and the business community, K Street, you know, the famous lobbying street in Washington, D.C., are attached at the hip. You know, he rakes in massive dollars from big corporate CEOs. The U.S. Chambers often at his side. And so now, like, what is he going to tell those guys? How is he going to convince them, A, that he's going to be speaker and B, that even if he is These people aren't going to do crazy shit because remember, first, they're nihilists. And secondly, they're populists. So like they don't like Charles Schwab. They don't want anything to do with him. And they're not impressed by his wealth. Like they don't care. In fact, like they would be the kind of people who would, you know, Mr. Schwab would come to see them and they'd stand him up just because they could. And then to cross the Capitol over to the Senate chamber, you know, McConnell's a little bit in the same position, too. I mean, he is a much better legislative strategist and tactician of his own conference than McCarthy could ever hope to be.
1: He also hides a lot better.
0: Right. You'd say a lot of things about him, all of them true, but he is also very good at what he does, whether you like him or not, right? And he's been good at it for decades. But you saw Rick Scott, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, a lot of these members come out and say, like Ted Cruz said, I'm not taking any more corporate PAC money. I don't need it, right? He doesn't need another $5,000 check from ExxonMobil or whoever the hell it is, right? It just doesn't matter. And, you know, Rubio said we should make sure all our companies are patriotic. And if we have to pass legislation to ensure that, we will. These are not small government, old line conservative thinking. This is tap dancing on the line with fascism. And like, I hope you're okay with that, because once you cross it, like you really can't come back. So, you know, where do we go from here? You know, it's either blazing a new path towards some sort of system or society that is Trying to build some sort of social and economic equity, or we go further and further down the path we're on. Let's be clear Democrats haven't done a lot to stop it either. I mean, I find it fascinating that we're sort of hurtling a, a year away here. And what we have to hope for, Sarah, is that the Democrats can do the bare minimum necessary and that the Republicans are as crazy as we think they are. I mean, that's not something that makes me sleep well at night.
1: I know. I was sort of laughing because I thought, geez, it's like the Republican learned the circular firing squad from Democrats. Because God knows they love to kill themselves as much as they can.
0: Yeah. Well, and we're seeing that now with Vice President Harris, right, where I was talking to somebody earlier today about the pot and they're like, but, you know, she likes to cook. I'm like, it's not about the vice president liking to cook. What you say is this isn't about a pot. This is about Republicans being afraid of a powerful woman of color. That's what this is about. That's what you say. Pete Buttigieg being on parental leave is not about parental leave as a policy. It is about two gay men with twin children and pictures of it. Like, great. You can send Pete Buttigieg on MSNBC and talk about the advantages of parental leave. Great. Is that making the policy argument? Yes. Is it losing the political argument? Also, yes.
1: Yep. I mean, it's funny to make fun of the pot thing and talk about, you know, this is just the tan suit issue, but it really negates the real conversation that Democrats should be having. You know, it's not just Harris and Buttigieg, but we've got our interior secretary is Native American and we've got a first lady is actually coming to the Cherokee reservation in Oklahoma on Friday. That's the first time anybody even connected to a president has come to a reservation in what, like six years, something like that. So it's really frustrating because Democrats are trying to be so representative of America. And yet whenever that same world is attacked, They're not defending that kind of ideology that we support everyone. And it ends up sort of hurting them. It's just like, come on, guys, like this is not the first time and we've done this for a long time now. We should have it figured out. And Democrats just keep screwing it up.
0: So let me ask you this, because as someone who spends a lot of time not only watching politics, but watching political media, what I am noticing now, and I I could probably rattle off six or seven examples the vice president in this silly pot being one of them and Buttigieg being another, is that when the right-wing rage machine spins up, the mainstream media and the left do one of two things. They either retreat immediately or they follow the Republican rage machine. But they never stand up to it. They never say this is shit. They never say, you know, well, Omicron, oh, you know, it must be election season again. Like, you're killing people. That's what you're doing, Republicans. You're not the party of life. You're the party of death. Chris Murphy from Connecticut said it this week. You stand up here and talk about being right to life. Three kids just got killed at high school. You know, 700,000 Americans are dead. You don't believe in life. It's a marketing slogan for them. But like, what is it about, I guess, the mainstream media? Is it the perceived hordes out there? Is it the trolls? What is it?
1: I think it is the trolls. I think that's one of the things that people are afraid of. But if you see Democrats and even progressives who don't even like to call themselves Democrats, they tend to want to fight on these issue-based things. And it's not an issue. It's an emotion. And their response, it's that reaction. But these are all tansuit issues, all of these. And instead of saying the things that you do, we just react to it because immediately they're triggered by the emotions of it to their detriment.
0: But if every confrontation comes down to fight or flight, There is no fight reflex. It's all flight. And I don't understand. Because the one thing we know, the one thing we've seen in practice, and we've suffered the consequences for it too, is that when you resist these people, they react badly. They show themselves to be who they really are. And they are eminently beatable.
1: Yeah, they absolutely are. And you can also raise a hell of a lot of money off of it. If you come back and don't play the victim and instead, you know, give the you're killing people. Or I call BS on your pro-life argument if you're going to basically have an unfunded mandate that women are forced to have children, which costs now like thirty to $50,000. We're not having those kinds of arguments. And it's sad because, I mean, as a somebody who used to raise money online, you could be making so much off of those fights if you just take them to Republicans.
0: I've spent a lot of time as this stuff was coming up about Roe v. Wade, and we saw this going back into Texas. And again, I, Chris Murphy's speech yesterday, which, Rob, maybe we can put the link to that in the show prep. He said, don't talk to me about the sanctity of life. Don't come to me and talk to me about that because you don't believe in it. It's a marketing slogan. They don't buy it. If they truly cared about each individual life, they would do something about protecting their people, whether or not that's from gun violence, whether or not that's from a novel coronavirus, whether or not that's from 700 Texans freezing to death last winter. They have abdicated and abandoned their responsibility to protect the individual lives and property of Americans. And like we should say, you don't get to own the word life anymore. You don't. If they had to stack up dead Americans like Cordwood and win an election or save Americans and lose, they'd stack them up like Cordwood. There's no question in my mind. But let's continue on the idea that the Republican leaders don't really care about the life and health of others. So It was revealed this week that former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows said in his forthcoming book that Trump tested positive for COVID-19 three days before his first debate with Joe Biden on September 26th. Trump has since lashed out at Meadows and said, quote, the story of me having COVID prior to or during the first debate is fake news, unquote, which, of course, means it's true.
1: Yeah, it's a non-denial denial. And what's true is that he did test negative. He just also tested positive. They did two tests and he wouldn't take a third one.
0: Right. And so, I mean, as an old presidential advance man, I can tell you that any time the president of the United States leaves the 18 acres, that's what they call the White House complex, it's like 60 people that go with him. It's the motorcade. It's all the Secret Service, all the military, the advanced staff, the traveling staff, all the people at the event, you know, the volunteers. At that debate between security, staff, everything else, I mean, backstage alone, there were probably three or four hundred people and he knew what he was doing and he did it anyway. And then, you know, he got horribly sick and he got Regeneron and all the monoclonal antibodies. And here's the thing is that I think that he does believe he's immortal. And I do believe in his lizard brain, he thought if I get Joe Biden sick and he dies, all the better for me.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. And they were asking Joe Biden about that today. And as I recall, he walked out with his mask on and slipped it into his pocket. So I feel like Biden kind of knew that there was something sketchy that was going on because Trump was supposed to show up with his entourage and get tested before the debate, and they didn't, which was obviously we know now because Trump had COVID.
0: And it's one of those things, too, which we take as an article of faith. And it sounds like in that instance, the now president's staff did, too, which is take the worst thing you can possibly imagine Donald Trump would do it, and he'll probably do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And You know, it wasn't just the debate. Now they're talking about like the Rose Garden event, and Trump probably had COVID then. He then went to the indoor event with all the Gold Star families. And he even bragged about like, these people are hugging, want to hug me. They want to show their affection and thank me and get in my face. And it's just like, oh my God, this whole time the dude wasn't wearing a mask. And I wonder how many people in that room were infected because of him.
0: So after he was sent to Walter Reed, with COVID. I think the Biden campaign pulled down its negative ads for like 24 or 48 hours or something. The Lincoln Project did not. We got calls from reporters saying, are you guys going to pull down your negative ads? And we're like, why would we do that? And they're like, well, Trump has COVID. I'm like, no one on planet Earth went out of their way more to get the damn thing than he did. This is on him, not on anybody else. He has gone out of his way since March or February or January, whenever it is, to downplay this, to not wear a mask, to go out and be reckless, and now he's sick? That's on him. And people are like, well, that sounds different. I'm like, well, yeah, we're not pulling anything down. Because he didn't, right? He was in the hospital. His campaign didn't pull anything down. Why would they? And so it just goes to show you that sometimes, you know, bullies are going to fight no matter what, and you can't let them off the hook.
1: That's the thing is I think a candidate is more likely to play the nice guy game and try not to offend anybody, whereas, you know, a pack can basically come in and be like, you know, and light it all on fire, That's why every candidate should have a pack so that they can keep their ads up and the candidate can be like, oh, no, we're we're doing the right thing.
0: (laughs) So let me ask you this, too, just back to Mark Meadows. So there's been talk to that he is going to talk to the January 6th committee. We'll ultimately see what that looks like. So do you think that Meadows is ready to flip?
1: I don't know. The thing that was interesting about this news is because we've been talking about the January 6th thing and then this story came out, I was like, oh, my God, what is he trying to distract us from? right? Like this was one of those things where you're like, oh, this is going to be the story of the day. So what else is happening that they're trying to keep us from looking at? And I wonder if that's what Meadows is trying to signal or if he's trying to cover himself by saying, here's this terrible thing that happens. I'm coming out about this. By the way, I'm not actually going to talk to the committee about anything.
0: I mean, it was an interesting thing. I mean, if Chris Christie sold 2,200 books, maybe this gets Mark Meadows to 2,500 books. But if you're wanting to stay in the inner circle as part of the structure and the orbit around Trump, like this book and this revelation, A, doesn't seem to be a good way to do it. And B, even the idea that you're talking to the committee, you know, it's like at the end of uh, casino, the guys are sitting around in like St. Louis or something, and they're going through all the people that they got, you know, do we trust him? Do we trust him? Do we trust him? They all go, yeah, 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 yeah. And the last guy goes, why take the chance? That's probably a very similar mentality. Like, He may not have done anything wrong, but why would we want him around in case he did?
1: And I would say, too, if you've read the plethora of books that have come out about the Trump administration in the last year, namely John Carl's new book that came out last month, Meadows really seems like he was not happy. (laughs) He seemed really, really miserable. And I don't imagine, like, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to go back to that?
0: But he also seemed to be, again, in this sort of I want to be part of it. I want to see how far I can push these things in the interim between Election Day and Inauguration Day, because if it works, then I get to stay. But if it doesn't, then I've got enough to you know, cover my backside to say I wasn't. I mean, he's not an OK guy. This is not a good guy.
1: But I don't know how he gets anything out of it, because if Trump can profit, he will do that first. And he's not going to let anybody else profit more than him. I think you saw Mitch McConnell do the whole thing with the tax bill. Republicans wanted a lot. They wanted a ton of stuff. And that was the only thing that they could pass when they had two years of power. So it's one of those things where I think Meadows, if he went in there with an agenda, there's no way he's going to get anything out of it. So maybe he spent his year in and was like, yeah, this is a waste of my time. I'm going to you know, write my book, try and make a lot of money out of it, and then go be a lobbyist for cannabis or something.
0: Well, I mean, you know, as fellow co-founder Rick Wilson once said in his New York Times bestselling book, everything Trump touches dies and it will be the careers of a lot of these people or the legal status of it. Um, All right. So, Sarah, listen, before we get out of here, where can folks find Raw Story and where can we find you on social media?
1: So rawstory.com and I'm usually writing like every 30 minutes because there's so much stuff to talk about. So I'm there and you can find me at, at Sarah Burris on the Twitters and Sarah K. Burris at the Facebook.
0: Sarah Burris, thanks for joining me. And as always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Thanks, everyone. And we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including the breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Marie Galen. See you on the next episode.